You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and our producer is Becky Hill. We're pleased to say you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. You can also find all of our podcasts at the League website, whose address is www.lwv dash bmc.org and again more slowly lwv-bmc.org today we're pleased to welcome miriam northcutt bombert she is associate professor of criminal justice at indiana university and her research has taught her quite a lot about state and local correction systems welcome miriam thanks thanks for having me Let's talk about people with mental illness or substance abuse problems. Such people often wind up in jails. Can you tell us how jails have become this particular repository? Sure. So estimates from the U.S. Department of Justice indicate that about 40% of people in jail have been diagnosed with some type of mental health disorder in their lives, and about 25% of people in jail have met the threshold for serious psychological distress in the past 30 days. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, about 75% of those people also have co-occurring substance use issues. Research has shown, especially for women in the criminal justice system, that people often use substances to cope with mental health issues in the absence of adequate medical care. And so just for comparison, uh, those rates of mental health issues are about three to five times higher than what we would see in the general population. So back to your question, why are so many people with mental health issues and substance use problems in jails? And there's at least three factors that contribute to this problem in the U.S. So first, For many years, we've seen the United States social safety net shrinking or being retracted. And some, for example, in 1996, when federal welfare reforms uh, began placing time limits on economic aid and required individuals to search for work, we saw a parallel path with that in the criminal justice system. So people who were um, failing to report to probation, for example, could lose access to their economic aid. And in 1996, that might just mean that they lost access to aid until they were reporting again and back in compliance. Over time, that moved to suspensions. It started off as being a one-month suspension, and in 2012, lifetime suspension was put in place. Research shows that these types of sanctions most often harm people with mental illness, those with limited education, victims of domestic violence, and people who are Black. So apart from time limits, excuse me, apart from time limits and sanctions for failing to seek employment, in 1996, the federal government also made it so that alcoholism and addiction would not qualify someone for disability benefits, which is out of step with countries similar to ours, like Australia and Canada, that not only provide economic support, but also provide treatment to people in those situations. So uh, in addition to the social safety net retracting, our, our health system is not built to handle the capacity we need it to handle. The health system doesn't have enough mental health or substance use providers, essentially. And even if we are able to fix that capacity issue, we still have a problem of inadequate access to health care and health insurance. And then third and importantly, affordable housing is inadequate, meaning we don't have enough of it, according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And even when there is housing in areas, people who've been involved in the criminal justice system in the past are often barred from housing due to both federal and local policies. So when you sort of take these things all together, there's many reasons why people who struggle with either mental health or substance use are unable to rely on social services to provide them with food, housing, or economic support. And with nowhere else to turn, they end up in jail or in the criminal justice system more broadly. 
Okay, so they've become this kind of repository more or less by default, Correct, for lack yeah. of something else. Okay. Uh, okay, let's get local. What about our own Monroe County? For example, do you think that our, our very own correctional agencies and mental health agencies here are assuming the needs of our mentally ill citizens who find themselves in jail right here in Monroe County? Yeah, so the community does have some innovative ways of helping people with mental health and substance use issues. One example off the top of my head is the drug court, which is one of our specialty courts designed to link people with greater or to greater resources and supports if they're struggling with substance use issues. So instead of being in a traditional court, um, if they fail to report to a probation officer, the judge has a lot more options. For example, the judge could walk them over to a treatment facility or provide them funding or help them get a ride or help sort of patch those holes instead of placing them in jail directly. Um, however, so I, I think Monroe County is progressive and, and really tries hard to address the needs of people who have mental health and substance use issues. But we're not immune to the structural problems that I outlined um, that exist in states across the United States. We just don't have the access we need to affordable and accessible mental health and substance use treatment. Okay, let's talk a little bit about racial and ethnic disparities. What kind of racial and ethnic disparities, if any, have you seen yourself in state and local correctional systems? And if so, how have we handled those disparities? Right. So my work is mostly at the state and local level in Indiana, and it's centered on community supervision, which includes probation, parole, and community corrections. Although these agencies look different in various counties, the easiest way to think of them is that probation is the least serious, par parole is the most serious. So probation, often you've committed like a, a minor offense, like a first offense for drug possession, and you can avoid incarceration for that. Parole, you've been to a state prison, and you're being released to supervision. And community corrections is often a step in between those two, which involves electronic monitoring, such as an ankle bracelet to make sure people are where they need to be. So my work on probation in, in Monroe County has shown that black clients are more likely than others to get in trouble for breaking the rules of probation, and that's considered a violation. But they're not more likely to go to jail for breaking those rules, and that's considered a revocation. For example, a rule that could be broken would be a failure to, to report for a probation appointment or to attend a, a treatment program. So in my own research, we're still trying to figure out what's happening by considering the actions of police, probation officers, judges, and many other factors. And we don't have an answer quite yet for what's driving the racial disparity, um, but we've had a lot of really great um, and transparent interactions with different people in the county trying to address that. So in my own research, I don't look at police contacts or pretrial diversion in Monroe County, but some of my colleagues at IU have, and they've found, for example, Drs. Hipple and Henry found that IUPD has more interactions with Black residents relative to their white residents. Dr. Lauder and her team looked at pretrial processes and found that Black defendants are rated at higher risk to recidivate. Um, then there's similarly situated white defendants. Dr. Kearns and colleagues found that arrest rates are higher for black clients in Monroe County than for white clients. And then finally, along with Drs. Grommer and Loudon, we found that black residents are dis disproportionately sentenced to probation relative to uh, their population proportion. Okay, you've alluded to probation. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit more about exactly what is the probation system? And for example, if I'm on probation, how might I navigate the system towards a successful completion or toward the revocation of my probation? 
Right. So in Indiana, probation is governed or run by the county courts. Um, so if you commit a crime in Indiana and a prosecutor decides to file charges against you, you go to court, you may or may not have an attorney, and there usually a judge decides whether to convict you or not. So if they decide to convict you, you'll be given a sentence. So you could, if you are convicted or found guilty of a serious crime, you could be sentenced to more than a year, in which case you go to a state prison, or for shorter sentences, you could be sentenced to jail, or you could be diverted to a term of probation which means you work with a probation officer in your county. In Monroe County, there are standard rules of supervision that you'd have to follow if you're on probation. There's eight. We recently worked, my research team worked with um, the probation office to revise some of these rules. So for example, two of the rules are, I will not commit a new criminal offense. Another one is I will not use alcohol or controlled substances. So if you follow those rules, usually for one to two years of supervision, you're just released and you go about your life. However, if you can't follow those rules, for example, you're using substances or you fail a drug screening, um, that probation officer can file paperwork with the court and bring you before a judge to decide if on the light end, if you should have your rules of probation changed, so maybe you report more frequently than you have been, or on the more severe side of the continuum that you should go to jail to serve out the rest of that sentence instead of serving it on probation. So research I've done with professors Grauman and Lauder have mapped the various pathways people take through probation in Monroe County. And we looked at 11 different pathways and we found that most people, more than half, are able to follow the rules and successfully complete probation. We found that only 10% of people commit new offenses. And we found that about 15% of time, people frequently break rules. And the patterns look like alternating no-shows or failed or missed substance screenings. And those are the folks who get taken in front of a judge um, and it's decided if they should be um, revoked and sent back to jail. But that's not the path that most people follow in Roe County. Uh, sometimes we hear about pretrial options. What are the various pretrial options? What are they exactly and, and how do they work? And do we need a lot more of that kind of thing to make the system work better the way it should? Yeah, great questions. I definitely think uh, the system could use more pretrial options in general. I'm happy to say that Monroe County has a lot of pretrial options um, and is very thoughtful in their approach. So right now, IU has a great partnership with a local prosecutor, Erica Oliphant, to examine the pretrial diversion programs that exist here. Um, and so I have a small role in that project, which is headed up by Drs. Henry and Dr. Grauman and a doctoral student named Carmen Diaz. So first, um, you asked about pretrial options, meaning what options does a person have after arrest before trial occurs? After a person is arrested and admitted to jail, generally one of three things happened. They may be offered bail, and that involves the person being required to pay a certain amount of money before um, being released, before trial. The second thing is they can be released on their own recognizance, and that's essentially being released without having to pay any money, but you agree that you'll return to court. The third thing that can happen, which is more rare, is that you can be detained or held in jail, and that usually happens if you're determined to be a flight risk or you pose some danger to the community. There's been a lot of research attention um, to the use of cash bail in Indiana and nationally, and the reason for that is because research shows cash bail is really problematic. It has a history rooted in racial and class disparities in the United States, and it disproportionately impacts low-income individuals. So if we could remove um, the reliance on cash bail, we could lessen both class and race disparities. So um, related to pretrial diversion, though, these programs I think we can use more of, during the period between when a person is charged and when their case goes to court, depending on what the type of crime was, 
individuals might be eligible for pretrial diversion programs. In Monroe County, there's a special program specifically for traffic infractions and then another pretrial program for a wider range of offense types. And if you meet the criteria for those programs, instead of going to trial, you can participate in a program which does have fees you have to pay. But if you complete that successfully, you can get all of the charges dropped completely, meaning you don't have a conviction on your record, which could block you from other things that you might need as we discussed. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about how these options might possibly improve the correctional system, especially with regard to racial, ethnic, and gender disparities? So the major uh, benefit of these types of programs of both probation and pretrial diversion is that they provide the ability to avoid incarceration, either in a jail or a prison, by leaving someone in their community. Being in your community means that you probably have access to the same housing you've had. You can provide for your children or others who depend on you. Um, you can keep working if you have a job, and hopefully you have resources that you might need for professional help, like for counseling or for treatment. So the question sort of becomes who benefits most from being able to stay in their communities yeah. from these programs that allow you to stay in your community? Well, women, women for sure do because they're more often caretakers of children than others who need care like elderly parents or disabled individuals. Um, the, the prison policy initiative finds that programs like probation have lower disparities than you would see in imprisonment across race, gender, age, and educational attainment. And they cite work by Michelle Phelps at the University of Minnesota. However, Phelps complicates the explanation a little bit by saying that probation could make disparities better, but they could also make disparities worse. And and Phelps explains that adults with more privilege have an easier time completing supervision requirements, like reporting to appointments on time, interacting deferentially with their probation officer and paying fines and fees. So for them, probation lessens the impact. Um, however, for people with less privilege, probation can serve as a net widener, meaning it expands the length of supervision for low level cases because of its onerous requirements for frequent and expensive drug testing. When people can't meet those conditions, they get violated and then revoked, and it really just ends up being a delayed pathway to jail or prison. It could even become more costly, and so it isn't a diversion from incarceration. So in this way, Phelps sort of presents two pathways, one in which disparities can be lessened and one in which they can be exaggerated. Okay, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what's called monetary sanctions. Uh, and wonder if you could explain how Indiana uses them exactly. And please tell us what you personally think about them. Sure. So monetary sanctions refers to money collected by courts and probation departments um, for at least three purposes. We, use, we loosely refer to monetary sanctions as fines and fees, but they can also include restitution. So restitution is when um, the money that courts collect money from people convicted of a crime to give it to their victims or otherwise to repair the harm that they've created. Fines are used by courts to punish people. And then fees can be collected by either courts or by supervision agencies to pay for their services. So it's like a user fee. And the goal is to reduce costs to taxpayers. So my research team and I just completed a five-year study of fines and fees across the state of Indiana in probation, parole, and community corrections that was part of a multi-state study funded by Arnold Ventures. Um, so we found that depending on which agency we're looking at, if it's in a rural or an urban area or what type of agency it is, that about 12 to 25% of that agency's budget comes from the user fees that they're collecting from clients. So agencies do rely quite a bit on fees. Looking at the individual level, like how much money does a person actually pay in fines and fees, 
for people on probation, um, the total load is about $1,700 for one term of probation. And that breaks down to $400 they pay to probation office, another $400 they pay to courts. If they have restitution, that amount would be $993 on average, and their fines would be $38. About 65 to 80% of people are charged fines and fees. And because restitution and fines are more rare, not as not um, like 10% of people are charged those, the average rate you could expect on probation is about $800 total. Um, community corrections is higher because they use electronic, electronic monitoring and parole is lower because the state of Indiana has made a rule that parole cannot charge fees in the same way. So your question sort of asks, are these amounts of money problematic or are they justified? Um, and we, in our findings, we found that the, the amounts of money are problematic, that a lot of people can't pay them, and that whether or not people can pay those fines and fees is tied to whether or not they have violations or revocations. So similar to Michelle Phelps' findings, we find that people who can pay for supervision have very few problems. People who struggle to pay for fines and fees are more likely to land in jail eventually. And so my personal thoughts about fines and fees are that uh, they are they contribute to this two-track system. Um, and it's even though we have things in place like waivers, our research is just showing that those just aren't being used the way they need to be used. All right. Let's end on a really local note. What do you think yourself about the new proposed jail system in our very own Monroe County? Yeah, great question. So as a researcher, I definitely think it's time for a new jail. I know... Um, I mean, when I first moved into the county, I was reluctant to say that because there's always this fear that if you build it bigger, they will come. And so I'm not suggesting a larger jail, but I do think a newer jail provides better opportunities for programming. <laughs> so like, as a resident, not as a researcher, I'm hopeful that a new jail will provide more programming and classes and resources to people in the jail who need them. I know that we have a lot of important voices at the table who are making these decisions. So the, the county commissioners who fund the jail, the sheriff who runs the jail are listening to a lot of community members. So I'm hopeful that ultimately they'll land on a good okay. Thanks to you very much, uh, Miriam Bummert, for your um, uh, information about this extremely important topic, both statewide and locally. And to our, or to our listening audience, uh, th thank you very much for listening to us today on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizens-led organization that's been fighting since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to Mary Morgan, who is Director of Housing and Security for Heading Home in South Central Indiana.